our study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And the passage we will look at this morning is Philippians chapter 2, and we begin reading at verse 19. Paul, having founded this church in Macedonia, Philippi, ten years earlier, now receiving a gift from them in the form of Epaphroditus and in the form of money to help him in his time of house arrest in Rome when he's chained to a guard and awaiting his case to be heard before Caesar's court, writes them this letter of encouragement. And uh, in the section we're going to look at today, The storyline, that background of the letter, is going to come through to the forefront. So, without further ado, uh, in the Pew Bible, it's on page 1176. Philippians 2, verse 19. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child with his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Because he was longing for you, uh, longing for you all, and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete that which was deficient in your service to me. Thanks be to God for his word. Now, whenever we have an encounter with another human being, and we have to part ways, it's customary to discuss how we will resume communication and connection the next time. So, Usually it's because we sincerely want to see someone again, right? So, will I see you at the party? Will you be at church? Will you be in town again soon? That kind of thing. Or at the very least, it's a polite thing uh, to say to someone whether you really care to see them again or not. The formality of at least what's been reduced to see you later. It's just an interesting way of, of parting because it's at least expressing or acknowledging the thought that we want some ongoing uh, 
form of this relationship to continue in the future. And that's the kind of thing which is certainly not done perfunctorily or in, with any formality or an insincerity, but very, very passionately on the part of Paul as he makes plans for how this relationship beyond the writing of this letter is going to be in the future. How the communication, them knowing how he's doing, him knowing how they're doing, is going to take place. So the relationship continues with very practical plans in the form of Epaphroditus, Timothy, and Paul hopes Paul himself. Sounds like housekeeping issues, and in some degree it is. You know, just talking about plans that don't directly involve us, but don't tune out. Well, what is the storyline? First, Epaphroditus is going to go back to Philippi, about 800 miles to the east, from where Paul can't leave the room because he's chained to the the guard as he stands accused, but has the right of appeal as a citizen of Rome to have his case heard by Caesar. He's been there, chained, for about two years. Epaphroditus was from Philippi. He brought the gift. He was the gift. Money that would help feed Paul and service on the part of Epaphroditus for Paul for things that Paul couldn't do because he was chained. You know, do the shopping at the market, prepare food, do the laundry, that kind of stuff. Not stuff that the Romans covered. But Paul has decided to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi with the letter And here in this passage that we looked at, he explains to them why. Because Epaphroditus had got sick. Now, apparently it's happened early on, reading between the lines, perhaps even on the way to Rome. That would make the most sense because Paul says not only did he get sick, and very sick to the point of almost dying, But he also refers to Epaphroditus' example or behavior as risk-taking. What is the risk of getting sick and almost dying? Not much of a risk unless you do something that could risk dying, which would be explained if what happened was that Epaphroditus, on the way to Rome, got terribly, terribly sick and yet decided when the choice before him was return to Philippi and recuperate or carry out the mission press on risking his life and going to Rome. That would explain what Paul refers to when he says this guy risked his life for me, for the sake of Christ, for the gospel. And if that's what's happened, something else happened that causes uh, some anxiety in the part of Epaphroditus, and then the anxiety spreads on to Paul. And that is that the the Philippians heard of Epaphroditus' illness. So word had somehow gotten back to to Philippi that they knew Epaphroditus was sick and gravely sick, perhaps dead by now. And then what happened is that word came back from Philippi to Epaphroditus, wherever he was, had he arrived at Rome already or not, that the Philippians had heard that he was sick and perhaps even dead. 
So how does Epaphroditus respond knowing that? Well, he's very distressed. He's anxious. Because his beloved church who sent him here on a mission is now worried about him and they don't know that he's recovering from his illness. In fact, he's recovered. So he is anxious, worried, nervous. And that in turn affects Paul. Now Paul is worried, anxious, nervous about the Philippians not knowing what has happened to Epaphroditus. And he's burdened for Epaphroditus. He sees the anxiety on Epaphroditus's face, you see. So, what is to be done? Well, Paul decides that it would serve all things better if he simply sends Epaphroditus back. It's interesting that in just a little while, using the very same terminology, in chapter 4, that famous passage... Paul will instruct the Philippians to not be anxious about anything. Rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Don't be anxious for anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition, supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God, and the peace of God that passes understanding will protect your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So you probably know that passage. It's a wonderful passage that we need I need every day of my life. Don't worry about stuff. Give it to God in prayer. And yet, here, earlier on, Paul admits in the backstory here of the letter writing itself that there's anxiety on the part of Philippians, that there's anxiety on the part of Epaphroditus, and that there's anxiety on the part of Paul as well. Anxiety is not something that simply goes away when you pray. It diminishes, but then you have to pray again, right? Every day you have to deal with that which causes anxiety. And what do you do with it? Well, you pray, yes, absolutely, but is that the only thing you do? Just because we are to pray instead of worry doesn't mean there's nothing else to be done. Now, sometimes we worry about stuff that we have no control over whatsoever, right? God, give me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change says uh, Reinhold Niebuhr's famous serenity prayer. The courage to change the things I can. That's another important part. The wisdom to know the difference. So what do we do when we're made anxious about those things we cannot change? Well, Paul tells us, give it to God because He can take care of it. Okay, so it's beyond our control, but it's never beyond God's control. Give it to God in prayer. But there are those things that we can do something about. So they might cause us to worry. And we should pray, sure, absolutely. But what else can we do? What else should we do? Sometimes prayer is our only option. But perhaps you're worried about something that you need to do something about. So maybe you're worried, how am I going to put food on the table? Well, have you looked for a job? Just for an example. How am I possibly going to pass the exam tomorrow? I'm worried. Have you studied? You see, for me to say, are you worried about your exam tomorrow? Just pray about it. Is not necessarily the the best or the only thing that I should say. Pray about it, sure. But study for crying out loud, right? There's something you can do about it. 
So here too, there is anxiety. But Paul can do something about it. To communicate with the Philippians. To send back Epaphroditus. So that his mind is at ease when he arrives back in Philippi and they will see that he's alright. He's alive. And that their minds will be at ease when he arrives because they will see that he's alive. And that Paul's mind will be at ease because Epaphroditus is not there sitting and fretting and it's just a matter of communicating information. So listen, your mother's worried about you. Is it right for her to worry? Well, maybe not. She should be praying more. Maybe she does pray. Maybe that's exactly what she does. But you know what? You could pick up the phone and give her a call and tell her that you're okay. I'm talking to myself. Call mom. All right. I'll do it later. But you see, a simple consideration, thoughtfulness of picking up the phone because... And here's a way of implementing the empathy we've been talking about, this example that Paul has set up of Christ and what he did out of concern for the needs of others. And so he's talking about a couple of men who the most wonderful, remarkable quality about these guys is they're not just preoccupied with their own lives They are thinking about the needs of others. Isn't that exactly what he's told the Philippians to do? Showing them the incomparable example of Jesus. And that's what Paul is doing. He's thinking about others. Could he have used Epaphroditus' services there in Rome? Sure. He had Timothy, though. He had other people helping him out. He was not utterly stranded. The Philippians had sent Epaphroditus and the money without Paul asking for these things. And later on he's going to say, I didn't really need the money, but thank you. It was a good thing on their part. Paul says it's a wonderful sacrifice, acceptable to God, but what serves the needs of, well, really everyone? It would be better even for Paul not to have the anxiety of being anxious about Epaphroditus who was anxious about the Philippians who were anxious about Epaphroditus, you see. It would serve Paul better to rid himself of that anxiety than whatever practical services Epaphroditus could continue to serve there in Rome with Paul. So he does something about it. He communicates. He sends Epaphroditus back. And that's why. Now, a good question for you to ask at this point. Because we're not just running through the Bible and reading the words in a superficial way. But we're giving it a close reading. And what that means is we're asking good questions when we read. And one maybe really obvious question, but really good question to ask when we read something from the Bible or anything else is, Why did the writer feel it necessary or advantageous to write this? And when you think of it, it's a good question in this particular case. Why? Because Epaphroditus is carrying the letter. He's going to be there in Philippi, and they're going to see that he's alive. So Paul doesn't have to write the backstory of the fact that he was sick and he almost died. 
This is all stuff that Epaphroditus could tell them in person, and their anxiety will be relieved by the fact that he's there alive anyway. So why does Paul write this? What we're doing is we're addressing the opening statement that I made that this is housekeeping matters involving plans that don't directly involve us, involve different people long ago. So what? Can we sort of shut it off and uh, not risk any uh, losing anything, losing out spiritually if we just tune out in this part of the Bible? No, not at all. It's housekeeping, but it's, it's much more than that. So, close reading. Why does Paul bother writing this when Epaphroditus is right there and could tell the story to the Philippians himself. Notice what he says about Epaphroditus is not just an explanation of the facts, but a strong commendation of this man. Telling them to honor this man. Why? Well, Epaphroditus would arrive safe and sound, and of course you can imagine the Philippians saying, Oh, you're not dead, you're alive, that's great. What are you doing here? Does that make sense? See, Paul is giving us a wonderful example right now of thoughtfulness, of consideration. Why? Because he's become in the habit as a disciple of Christ, not just to be concerned about his own welfare and needs, but to think what's going on and how can he best foster unity and love in that Philippian church and not just write about it in abstract terms, but actually do what he can to facilitate it. And so, instead of leaving Epaphroditus to have to sort of justify, well, Paul said he didn't really need me anymore. You see where I'm going? Uh, Why am I back so soon? Uh, Did I drop the ball? Did I not carry out the mission that you sent me on and you entrusted me with? Well, this is what happened, and so, like, here I am. An awkward position to put Epaphroditus in. You see what I'm saying? So what we're seeing here is so much more than simply plan-making, but Paul says, here is this man, a fellow soldier, a, a wonderful man, a man who should be honored. He risked his life for the gospel, Hold such men in high regard, receive him with all joy, which is Paul's way of doing that work for Epaphroditus and not putting him in the awkward position of saying, this is what Paul wants, and this is why, and this is why it's for the best. And this man did not drop the ball. This man did not fail in his mission. He is there and should be honored. There shouldn't be any sort of unspoken suspicion that Epaphroditus had failed at his task. Second part of the plan. First, Epaphroditus arrives with a letter. And then, Timothy. And as soon as Paul knows the outcome of his trial, again, Paul is thinking of the Philippians. They want to know. Anxiety. Yes, pray about it. Yes, but if you can give me some information that will diffuse my anxiety... Because anxiety just spreads, doesn't it? We've seen it spread from the Philippians to Epaphroditus to Paul. Communication. So, knowing that they are anxious about Paul and the outcome, having already written, it's a win-win situation, 
if I live, I live for Christ. That's great. If I die, I'm going to be with Christ. And that's even better. He's said that, you remember, in the first chapter. But they're still anxious because they love him. So, as soon as he gets word, he will send Timothy, who's with him, to Philippi, get the news there immediately. Now, here again, it's not just a plan, but he commends Timothy. Why? Close reading. Why does he write? Why did he feel it necessary or advantageous to write the things that he does? As he says here about Timothy, I don't have anyone else like him. A kindred spirit. I'm so glad for that translation. I don't know if you have other translations, but that's, that's what it really says. Not just like-minded or we think the same sort of thoughts, but it's speaking about uh, equal psyches. So we have the term, a kindred spirit. I can't think of anyone else who would be as concerned for your welfare. I mean, everyone's concerned for their own thing, right? And Paul is making this sort of just general statement. He's saying he's not saying that there's no good people out there who ever think of anything but themselves and never think of what Jesus would have them think of about others, for the welfare of others. He's, he's not making a statement that should be pressed too exactly to every person universally, but he's making this general statement that is true in society and even in the church. We care about our own stuff. And not not many, rare it is to find someone who will lay aside his own advantage for the sake of others. So why is he saying this about Timothy when he plans to send Timothy to them to bring news to them about Paul and the outcome of Paul's appeal. For this reason, Paul can't come immediately himself. Timothy is, what do we know about Timothy? Well, the Philippians knew Timothy. On that second missionary journey, ten years earlier, Timothy was a convert, a young man, along with his mother and his grandmother, in Galatia, the middle of what we call Turkey, And Paul went to the churches that he had planted on his first missionary journey and strengthened the brethren there. And he collected Timothy with him, a very young man, to take him further on, heading west. And that's when he eventually ends up in Philippi. So Timothy is with Paul. When Paul first comes to Philippi, they know Timothy. Now, we don't know when Paul and Silas end up in prison and all that whole story what Timothy is doing. It's not mentioned, but we do know that he was there. So he didn't have to go to prison. He was uh, with the believers, with Lydia and her household who had been converted. He was doing that behind-the-scenes work of strengthening the church. And later on, when Paul had other business with troubled churches like, uh, well, like Corinth, the book of Acts tells us, he sent Timothy up to Macedonia. So Timothy had a, an ongoing relationship with the Philippians. And what Paul is saying here about Timothy is, you know he's the real deal because it's been proven. Okay, So I'm not just saying stuff about a person who said this, this stuff or it's written in his resume, but you have seen for yourself that he is the real deal, he's genuine. So why is he saying that? We know that Timothy was a very young man and a little on the shy side. And that seems to come through pretty clearly from Paul's letters to Timothy uh, himself. So... The point is, I think, when Timothy comes, that Paul wants the Philippians 
Not to think that this is somehow second best to Paul himself. So that they would know that what they are getting in Timothy is the very same concern, the kindred spirit, as Paul himself. So Paul says not only will he send Timothy when he knows what's going to happen to Paul, but he will send Timothy so that Timothy can come back to Paul and tell Paul how the Philippians are doing, you see. And he will do so with the same concern for their spiritual health that Paul has himself. So what Paul is saying here is it's like, I'm going to be with you. So don't look at this man, young, a little shy, any differently like you would look at me. He's there to make sure that you are hearing this letter that I'm writing, that you are hearing the example of Christ. Later on, we're going to talk about two sort of pillar women in the church who aren't getting along. So Paul is doing all of this facilitating of relationships, maintaining of relationships within the body of Christ from 800 miles away to a church where two women who are a few feet from each other in the church meeting won't cross the aisle and talk to each other anymore. And Paul is saying, I'm sending Timothy there and I'm going to hear how you're doing from him. I'm going to hear how the unity of the body is. I'm going to hear how you took the challenge to help these women work out their differences. I'm going to hear from Timothy. You, res- you give him all the respect that you would give me. Paul is being thoughtful. Paul here is not just taking care of some housekeeping issues. Paul is giving us an example of two wonderful men that we should look at as examples, but in doing so, he's giving an example in himself as well of thoughtfulness. Look at Timothy in his mild manner. He's concerned with you. More than himself, that's rare. Look at Epaphroditus, willing to risk his own life for the sake of Christ for others. So, and then the third issue, of course, is Paul coming whenever he's able to, right? He's not 100% sure that he won't be executed, but he has a strong feeling about it. And he says that with just a little qualification. So he uses words like, I hope in the Lord, because Paul is admitting that he's not omniscient, that he's not God, that he doesn't know everything. And he's not been given a specific prophetic word from God where he's certain of the future. So as James says, you know, don't say, I'm going to go do something somewhere in the future. Say if the Lord wills, you know, because it's for your own benefit as much as anything else. Don't be arrogant. Because then, if it doesn't work out, you're going to be discouraged rather than realizing, you know what? God's got a plan. So what's the plan now? It wasn't exactly what I thought it was. So Paul is pretty confident that he has more work to do there in Philippi with the Philippian church, yes. But there's also the possibility that he got that wrong and that he will be executed. So he says, I hope to come to you eventually as well. So, first Epaphroditus, then Timothy, then Paul. And my whole point in this, again, is this is housekeeping, but it's so much more. It's really all of these plans are an embodiment of the message of the letter itself. And notice where we find this passage. It's not tacked on the end of the letter where Paul so often says stuff like, 
you know, so-and-so says hi and, and greet so-and-so for me and that kind of stuff where, you know, there's some benefit for us in that as well. It shows a relationship that is a model for us. But we kind of tune out a little bit and think, well, it's, you know, my name's not there. But this is not just sort of like little personal issues like take a little wine for your stomach, uh, you know, Timothy, type of material. There's something core to the message of the letter. We find this housekeeping stuff in the middle of the letter. Because it's an embodiment of the message itself. He's talked about Jesus. And now he's showing the men who will show them Jesus. And in the way that he is relating to them and writing to them and thinking of their needs and the needs of the unity of the church and what's going to happen when Epaphroditus arrives and what they might think and how he can deal with it to address it and how he can lessen the anxiety of the whole situation. You see, Paul himself is embodying the message he's been writing about when he talked about Jesus. So that brings us to the church. Sometimes, uh, well, okay, we're way too individualistic. You've probably heard preachers say that before, but it's true. So, too often we read things like, in the beginning of Philippians, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion unto the day of Christ Jesus. And we individualize that, and we just assume that because the second person singular and plural in English are the same when we don't use the and thou anymore, that, well, he's, we're talking about me and God's, God, the work that he began inside of me personally, individually, he will carry on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, which is a true thought and an encouraging thought, but the word is plural. So he who began a good work in you, among you, in your midst, Paul is talking to a church as an entity, as an organism. Or have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something that he had to cling to, but he emptied himself. Chapter 2, the famous passage we talked about earlier. Plural. Have the same mind among you. In your midst, in your church. So, it's good to personalize, to internalize individually, absolutely, but not to the exclusion of realizing that we are in a body of believers where it all gets worked out by the Lord's design. It's not really an issue of, like, uh, believer, you should become a member of the church. It is, believer, you know what? You are a member of the church. It doesn't work any other way. If you're in Christ, you're in His body. The question is, do you acknowledge that? Do you act as though that's true? Do you fit in and, and, and do the ministry and, and benefit from the ministry of the church? So often we individualize things where the church becomes like another tenant at Destiny USA... And maybe we love going to the mall. Maybe we love going to church because it meets our needs and we find what we need there and we can bring it home and we can make use of it. And that's great. Or maybe, like me, you hate the mall 
And sometimes you have to go there just to get something you need. And you go in and you get what you need and you leave and you hope you don't have to come back for a long time. And maybe the church is like that for you. Okay, I will go to the church because it has something I need. I will take what I need and I will go home. And well, I guess I'll have to end up going there again sometime in the future. But this is not a consumer service. Here is where you get to see Jesus. So Paul talks about love and unity and selflessness and service. Not just as abstract things, but he has shown them incarnate in the Son of God. Beginning with the time that he left heaven and humbled himself to become a human being, a slave. Dying a slave's death. Obedient. And therefore, God highly exalted him. But it's not just the stories about Jesus that we read about. God has arranged things so that we get to see it by the Spirit of Jesus, the very same Jesus Spirit, embodying fellow believers. Now, not sinlessly, not perfectly, but look at Timothy. They knew this man. None of them had seen Jesus in the flesh, but they saw Timothy. They saw what selflessness was like. Epaphroditus, they knew this man. They knew what it was like to get sick. Maybe they knew what it was like to die and think, would I have gone on in the journey? <sighs> Honor men like Epaphroditus. So the church is, we're all members of the church. Some of us formally acknowledge it and act that way. And not perfectly, but let me encourage you from the Word of God, to do so, because it's in the church that Jesus is to be seen, uh, among perhaps many other ways of putting it, and it's in the church that we need to see Jesus in others, and there's going to be someone who needs to see him in you. So it's not just go in and get what you need, but go in, get what you need, and give what others need, and what we need and what they need is to see Jesus to see that incarnate Son of God humbling Himself for the needs of others, setting His own needs aside, it needs to be seen in flesh and blood. And that's what the church is about. And that's why Paul doesn't just shoot off a letter and say, well, I hope, I hope that goes well. But it's part of a relationship that's ongoing. It's part of a concern for one another. Because, you know, when, when, a part, like when there's a sliver in my finger, the eye way over here is concerned. keeps looking at it. When, when there's a canker sore in my mouth, my tongue, is, it worries about it. That's how a body works, right? 
when there's an itch in my back, my fingers say, well, here, let me help you with that. You saw Timothy like a son with his father. These are all echoes of Jesus, who was equal with God, but didn't cling to it, emptied himself, became obedient to death. Why? So that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow to the glory of God the Father. Well, Timothy's like that. Timothy wasn't too proud to take the position of a son with a father as he ministered with Paul in the Gospel. It's all an explication. It's all a revelation of Jesus. And we need to see Jesus continually. And how does Jesus make Himself visible in the church? Parts of the body. Not perfectly, but we're, still, we're working on that, right? And that's the whole point of seeing it and showing it. And that ma- marvelous marvelous passage we read in our responsive reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 contrasting the ministry of Moses that had its glory with the ministry that brings righteousness instead of condemnation and how God is bringing us from glory to glory. It's not a fading glory. It is an increasing glory to the point where we are being transformed into His likeness and we're seeing God as in a mirror. Well, it's an astonishing claim to make. But John says the same thing in 1 John chapter 3. Isn't it amazing that God calls you His children? But that's what you are. Now, the one who has hope in Him like that is committed to sanctification and holiness because one day we're going to see Him. We don't see Him right now, but one day we're going to see Him and it's going to be like looking in the mirror because he's transforming us into his likeness. That's what's going on in the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, make this great word of yours find a receptive place in our hearts where it too can put on flesh and blood in our own attitudes, in our treatment and care and love for one another. Thank you, Lord, that you surround us with a cloud of witnesses in the Bible and as your word is living and active in ourselves and in one another. So, Lord, please help us to take full advantage of that to our own edification. To your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.